0: to The Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined by David Moser, modern-day warrior, Mean Mean Pride. Today's academic director of the CET program in Beijing, Mean Mean Stride. How's it going? Great, except I don't understand what Mean Mean Stride means. So it's a rush song. So oh, okay. It's Tom Sawyer, dude. Um, Jeremy's on a work call and was going to join, but can't, and I don't know how much longer I can continue to make excuses for you, Jeremy, (laughs) so get your shit together and get back on the show. Uh, so today we're talking about the life and times of one of the more colorful expatriates ever to have lived here in Beijing, a man whose life was an inspiration to some of us, a cautionary tale to others... You guys are the type. Kid from a family of some means, back home, tends good schools but doesn't quite finish. Kind of a fuck-up. <laughs> but an arguably very smart one. Lights out for Beijing in the late 90s while in his early 20s. He uses his gifts for language to get in good with journalists who don't actually read or speak Chinese. dowels a bit in synology yeah, I mean I, I so far be, I think I know about five people. Yeah exactly, right? <laughs> you know we people. I'm yeah. sure we we know lots of people like that. I could be talking about, you know, of any of a number of dodgy <laughs> Beijing expats, including maybe even some of us sitting at the table. <laughs> but oh, geez. the late nineties I'm Steve. referring to here is actually the late eighteen nineties. And the man I'm talking about is Sir Edmund Trelawney Backhouse, Or Bacchus. Which we'll talk about oh. that later. Right? Mm-hmm. But as I, I think um all of us here, and probably many of our listeners, have, have read Hugh Trevor Roper's book, The Hermit of Pete King. And many of us probably accepted his judgment about Backhouse on Critically, that he was a libertine, a fabulous a con man, and undoubtedly a fascinating character. But times have changed, and reading it today, I think that many people would recognize a strong heteronormative, indeed flat-out fucking homophobic bias in that biography. And so today we're going to revisit Sir Edmund with... Derek Sandhouse, or Sandus, <laughs> Sandus, <laughs> um, who, who joins us here this evening uh, back on Seneca after uh, his last es- escapades here in the world of of sorghum liquor and other white spirits. Sure. Derek, how are you, man? Doing great. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah. Okay, so um, Derek, you have edited Backhouse's memoirs. We've talked about it before on this show, not in your presence, though, a volume called The Décadence Manchu. Uh, the China Memoirs of Edmund Trelawney Backhouse, published by Earnshaw Press, Graham Earnshaw's outfit, back in 2011. I understand you've got a new edition of it coming up?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um We are releasing an abridged version of uh, the memoirs that has been is a little bit tighter. Um it's kind of the addition that we would have done if Backhouse were alive today. So it's about twenty five percent shorter and it's completely translated into English. It doesn't have any footnotes. It should be all clear from the way it's edited. I
2: hope you just excerpted all of the naughty bits only.
1: No, I think we left in all of the naughty bits. Okay,
2: uh, okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. And um so uh, thanks Matt for taking time and, and coming in to 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 talk to us on the evening before the parade. So, how did you get interested in Edmund Backhouse?
1: Okay, well, it started back in 2008. I was working on a book that was kind of a collection of old travelers' uh, tales, kind of an anthology called Tales of Old Peking, which was the sequel to Graham Earnshaw's Tales of Old Shanghai. And this looked at a lot of principally um, foreigners that passed through Beijing in the 19th century for the most part. And... One character that just kept coming up was Backhouse, both as someone that was uh, a lot of rumors and legends were told about, and also someone who popped up again and again as the source of various legends that have been kind of accepted today about the Qing dynasty. Mm-hmm. Right. Most
2: notably, the, the the original picture we had of Sissy Taiho, the Empress Dowager, sort sure. of comes from him and... And William O. Bland, was this his o- name? Uh, J. O. P. J. J. O. P. John Otway Percy Bland. Right, Bland, yeah.
0: So who was this backhouse character? Let's, let's sketch out his biography really quickly. So he's born into a Quaker family uh, in, in, in England, a family of some modest
1: means. Uh, quite substantial means. Um, he was born in 1873. Um, his father was the president of uh, Barclays Bank and uh he attended um all the best private schools growing up um St. George's, uh, Winchester, and then he would go on to Oxford University where he claimed uh to be in part of the clique of Oscar Wilde and Aubrey Beardsley and another a number of other um homosexual literary types in the uh, 1890s um and then he kind of disappeared after the Oscar Wilde Wilde trial um and resurfaces in Beijing around 1898 where he quickly became uh the kind of informant and uh, translator for uh George Morrison the uh Times correspondent mm-hmm. from George when-
0: Morrison himself he's a very famous i mean you know, Wang Fu Jing used to be called Morrison, Morrison Street exactly I mean. yeah uh Morrison's an Australian probably the best known Australian to 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 China. and I, I didn't realize until today that
1: he didn't read Chinese no he didn't speak a word of Chinese and <laughs> well, so it- what the fuck did he I mean, how did he <laughs> what, did, what did he do I mean. um he um I don't want to say he did Backhouse, but he used Backhouse. Yeah, he um, he Backhouse, um, for the most part in his memoirs, looks back on Morrison um, as kind of a tyrannical boss that never paid him for his work, um, didn't understand China, was kind of boorish in his attitudes toward China. And... Um, Really built his reputation on the work of the information that Edmund Backhouse was bringing to him uh, during the years that he worked for them for him, which was right through the uh, probably the last decade of uh, the the reign of the Empress Dowager Cixi.
0: Not only did he have really excellent Chinese, but he also spoke Manchu and spoke Mongolian. Is that is that is that correct, or is that something that he just claimed? We have evidence for that.
1: I think. He says that he did, and there's no reason to believe that he didn't. We know that when he arrived in Beijing, uh, he was fluent in French, Italian, uh, Japanese, Russian, Latin, and several other languages that I'm sure I'm forgetting right now. He was considered one of the great linguistic geniuses of his age, and was supposedly working as a translator for the British legation within six months of arriving oh, in okay. Beijing. So within six
2: months, his Chinese was good enough to translate.
1: Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. He this had studied is, some Chinese before
0: coming here no
1: <clears throat> yes i believe he had studied some chinese yeah, he's an
0: orientalist at, at, at oxford was
1: um i'm not sure if he studied um i think he did study some uh, of the like in the oriental languages department while he was there but i don't i think he learned most of what he knew after he got here
2: Well, they, they didn't have pleco back then and there was even if he was at oxford where he was not learning colloquial
0: chinese i mean but what, what a fascinating character of course i mean immediately um he was, he he had controversy surrounding him very, very quickly, um, and that is detailed quite a bit in Hugh Trevor Roper's The Hermit of Peking, which is, I think, how a lot of us were first exposed to, um, the, the, the accusations center around a couple of things, one, that, uh, he, that he was a forger, or that, uh, he, uh, made, he had, he had, he passed off forgeries if he didn't actually forge them himself, um, and the most famous of these was uh, the basis for uh, a, a lot of his history on, on um, sure. the history. And, uh, it was supposed to, supposedly a diary from a Manchu nobleman named Jing Shan, who was uh, uh, during the Boxer uh, the, the, the what this was. So remember, he came here in 1898, in eighteen ninety eight. The Boxer uprising began in earnest in nineteen hundred, and so during the looting after of the palaces. Afterward, he supposedly came across this manuscript, right? Uh, right. Tell, tell us about this manuscript and what what I mean. There were a lot of people. I mean, Doc originally believed it, and then later by
1: the the nineteen twenties,
0: it was convinced it was a, a forgery as well.
1: Sure, um, Backhouse says that after the Boxer Rebellion, um, he moved into Jing Shan's uh, apartment, which was now vacated because he had been executed, and. What he said, or what he told um, J.O.P. Bland, who would go on to uh, collaborate with him on the book that made Backhouse famous, a book called China Under the Empress Dowager, that he discovered buried under the floorboards of this house a diary that was by Jing Shan, who was an official within the court at the time of the Boxer Rebellion. And it really kind of sets out the competing factions within the court, which parties wanted the foreigners killed, which parties were trying to save the foreigners, and paints this really heroic picture of an official that was not very well understood by the West called uh, Ronglu. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of paints him as the hero that stopped the foreigners from getting killed by the imperial troops. Um, so this, this, on the strength of this document, um, China under the Empress Dowager, which came out in 1910, became a massive hit. The first, I think, real international Chinese history bestseller. It went through, I think, six printings in the first year and kind of established, uh, Edmund Backhouse as the preeminent, uh, scholar on Qing dynasty history. Mm-hmm. But. <laughs> But we know now that um, the the Jingshan Diary is not a real historical document. That many passages within it are translation of classical Western texts. There are passages that are taken from Western classics that Jingshan would have not known. Uh. So... um, the style is very much written in the way that Backhouse writes prose. So the assumption has always been that Backhouse made up this document and forged it.
2: This is another example. This, this guy is so incredible because, uh, you, you know, he's, if, he's a, if he's a confabulator, he's of such quality that it almost might as well be true. I mean, this is unbelievable that someone could have done this. For example, were there Chinese people that can read this and detect... Didn't they detect if the some non-native Chinese in it? or I mean, how could he have mastered the Chinese language to such an extent, not to mention the wealth of detail?:
1: Well, I just think it really speaks to the depth of his linguistic genius because um, this was, this was a document that was submitted to the best uh, Western experts on the Chinese language at the time. Uh, uh, Doivendek, you mentioned, and also I believe Herbert Giles. Also, independently um, authenticated this diary. Wow! Um, and 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 handwritten. Handwritten, yes. S- so that's like three layers of impossible mastery
2: for someone who had, had learned the calligraphic after ability too. Yeah, the calligraphy, the language, and the and the the, the the level of historical detail that could that could fool people of the highest caliber, the highest caliber sinologists, as well as Chinese.
0: Native Chinese at the time. The this bar has ridiculous. been set very high, David. So this <laughs> little project that you and me are working on—you've got to. You know. Man. Well, yeah.
1: it, until until the time of his death, Backhouse maintained that he did not personally write this document; that he found it right. and presented it as he found it. Um, but given his, um, I would say, loose grasp of reality, um, the suspicion has always been pointed. At him. Yeah. Okay, let's let's talk about um, the the donations that he made to the Bodleian
0: Library. He didn't finish his de- degree, as I said in the little intro, for, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he would always sort of wanted to acquire a professorship just through the generosity, the, the sheer magnitude of his donations. Uh, his donations to the Bodleian include like several volumes of the Kangxi Cidian, or the Kang, yeah, Kangxi uh, Cidian, yeah. Yeah. yeah, not the Tsidian, but the encyclopedia, wasn't it?
2: Oh um, oh oh. That I don't know.
1: Yeah. The, the, um. Well, that would be massive. Yeah. Sudan yeah, yeah, is not that large. See, really. yeah, yeah, the, yeah. He donated, uh, I think, more than a thousand volumes to the library, wow. so it's totally possible. That and was then part of the collection were
0: those called into question later after his. I mean, I. I, I, I it's, been it's been a long time
1: since I read he Trevor Roper. But sure. No, um, when I was working um, on this project, I reached out to a guy named David Helluwell, um who at the time was the head of the uh, Chinese collection at the Bodleian Library. And I believe he's still there. He has a really fascinating blog. Um, I can pull up the link later if you want to throw it put on. Put it on the site. Put it on the yeah, site, yeah. yeah um that kind of goes over this collection and he often talks about the um the back house collection and some of the more interesting items on his blog um but he said that um Hugh Trevor Roper probably did not have a very good grasp of the value of this collection that Mm. at the time it was it made the Bodleian's uh Chinese collection one of the best in the entire world and um another uh thing that uh, Hugh Trevor Roper brought up when he was writing The Hermit of Peking, that it was kind of uh, maybe underhanded that Backhouse was trying to give all of this stuff to the Bodleian Library that, so that Oxford would name him the head of the Chinese department. But really, at that point in time in, uh, in uh, Chinese scholarship, that was not uncommon, a lot of the founders of Chinese departments um, in England were people that just gave a huge donation and taught students from that donation. Happened to be there at the right, looting at the right time. Yeah. yeah. Like
2: this, it sort of also speaks to the chaos at the time that there, there could be that many uh, his, you know, important historical documents running around in private collectors' hands or that he could get his hands on. And sure. That's, that's shocking to imagine. That would be so impossible
0: today. Right? Mm-hmm. The other um things that he's supposed to have lied about uh, <clears throat> considerably, of course, are his own exploits in that he details and that you detail in the edited edition of Decadence Manchu that you uh, that you worked on. Uh, this thing is is full of all sorts of pretty crazy tales. I think probably the craziest of which is his claims to have had an affair with the Empress Dowager to see him herself mm-hmm. and to have been well sodomized by her with her outsized, (laughs) gigantic clitoris.
1: Yes, this is, of course, uh, (laughs) the most fabulous and widely talked about passage in Decadence Manchu. His... um, Romp at the Summer Palace with the Empress Dowager. There's a series, it, of, who, romps. Who, who, series of romps. His series of romps. Yeah, he yeah. says. Well, who,
0: who by this time presumably is quite an elderly lady. I mean, she's, she's yes. well into her sixties.
1: At the at the time that he says their affair began, he was thirty three years old, and she was sixty nine, and he claims it went on for about four years, and that by his informal reckoning, they had. More than 150 um, carnal, encounters, uh, carnal encounters, as he might put it. Uh, so. so the improbability is—I is
2: <laughs> don't think it's the age difference that is the 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 the, uh, the most unlikely aspect.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's not just the age aspect. No. Um, the other, you know, big elephant in the room is that, of course, uh, Edmund of Backhouse. Foreigners. Was a foreigner and a homosexual foreigner, uh, uh, um, above all. Um, most of his relations that he talks about in, uh, this book take place with, um, uh, Peking opera stars, um, prostitutes, um, Manchu princes and noblemen. But the, the big exception, uh, is the Empress Dowager and, he claims it was more of a uh, platonic love that he had for her and that the uh, chief eunuch, uh, Li Li ing was able to give him what he called Mei Yao, which was uh, some kind of... Aphrodisiac. Yeah, like the uh, Qing Dynasty Viagra <laughs> that allowed him to perform Triadma. the deed.
2: One of the fun things about reading the book, um, I think you probably agree, is is trying to separate fact from fiction. There's Absolutely. no reason why he needed to confabulate all of it. Some of his gavortings that he talks about in the in the underground, uh, you know, pretty open actually, uh, homosexual community
0: in Beijing at the time it must have been true. It must have been he did, We know that he did that, right? So, what kind of standard did you apply when you were trying to decide? As you had to what was real and what was, or did you did you simply not bother and <clears> just? <throat>
1: I When I was editing this book, for me, the most important thing was to lay out all of the information. Uh, in the original edition, I think we had something um, as obscene as Edmund Backhouse, like a thousand footnotes, <laughs> that translated the both his incessant use of foreign languages. He often switches in and out of English and French and Latin and Chinese without translating for the reader so we needed to do that first of all but whenever he made a claim that we could either verify or refute using historical evidence um, I tried to put that in just to contextualize it but what's perhaps the most interesting as you mentioned David is that his depiction of the openly homosexual lifestyle in Beijing in the 1890s and the first uh, decade of the 20th century is really borne out by the available research. He seems to have been someone that was there, was participating in that social scene. And what to me is most interesting about this social scene is that it was very, very fashionable. So pretty much all of the princes and dukes in the Manchu court would have been at these gay brothels and bathhouses. Um, some of the writers from the day say it was more fashionable to be seen with a male prostitute than with a woman in public, and that you would be laughed out of the room if you showed up with a woman. <laughs> um, so if he was, um, as I believe, uh, someone who just traded the um, 1890s openly homosexual lifestyle of London for the openly homosexual life of the 1890s Peking – I think he would have had access to um, the uh, the ears and he would have also had access to information, the rumors that were circling around the court right. just by being in the proximity of these people. Why did he write this? Was he writing
0: it for... I mean, it was popular. Victorian sex novels are common. I mean, he, we, we he had lots of He these wrote it pra- on his deathbed also,
2: right? Yeah. Well, yeah, he wrote it
0: during
1: occupation, right? During the sure Before yeah I thought, he, I, th- I thought he, that wrote, he was yeah he, he wrote it in the last year of his life he wrote it um i believe in the first half of 1943 in um, a hospital In yes he was a patient in the french hospital in the uh, legation quarter and the person he wrote it for was actually his physician uh, apparently they developed a close relationship while he was in the hospital And he would tell the physician his stories of life in uh, the Qing Dynasty. And the physician said that he didn't want to lose these stories that Edmund Backhouse had, so he paid Edmund Backhouse as if he were the publisher of Edmund Backhouse's memoirs, and worked with Edmund Backhouse to transcribe and compile his stories, and that is how Decadence Manchu, and also another uh, series of memoirs called *The Dead Past* about his life in England, were compiled in the last year of his life. Wow are
0: you Are you considering doing *The Dead Past*?
1: Um, I have talk to people and, um, about doing that, but it's it's a pretty serious undertaking. Yeah, um, I think imagine. we would have to think that there was a real value to, to doing that before um, I committed to it. But certainly we wanted to start with uh, Decadence Manchu because Edmund Backhouse's knowledge of uh, the China of that era is pretty unique in that he's one of the only... Outsiders that was really conversant in the languages of the court, that that was also in a kind of unique position to um, speak about it without any fear of offending the authorities. So,
2: has uh, I have not read the, the Trevor Roper book in a ten 15, long time. Yeah, does, years. Does, does he attempt to put Backhouse on the couch? He does, does psychoanalyze. Yes. This? Uh, what is his conclusion?
1: His conclusion, um, I think is very similar to the conclusion you get in a lot of, um, like historians of World War II, which was his, mm-hmm. his specialty. He kind of conflates in Backhouse this connection between, um, homosexual deviance and fascism and views um, Backhouse is kind of this European with, uh, deviant sexual impulses and a lust for power and someone who romanticizes, uh, tyrants. Hmm. Um, which is a really, yeah, oh, it's not like, uncommon, not it, uncommon. It, it, but I think reading, um, reading Decadence Manchu in the year 2015, it's really hard to walk away thinking that Edmund Backhouse is, um, really someone that's romanticizing tyranny um so much okay. as someone that is telling it's kind of a bittersweet story actually about an old man who is looking back on the loves of his youth mm-hmm. and kind of lamenting the death of imperial china which he associates with um, with his youth and the mm-hmm. kind of a wonderful moment in Chinese history that was squandered,
2: someone who could have, in fact, written real sinology, I mean, w- without any a taint of doubt, and and would have been, in fact, the you know, the most amazing insider baseball sinology of all time. But he chose to to play this game. You know, where 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 he blended fact and fiction so much that it made it almost made these books useless. In a, sen- in a sense, in retrospect, even though there must be, I don't know what the percentage would be, 90% of them are probably very, very valid uh, historical documents. Right?
1: Well, one of the interesting things that um, Reinhard Hopley, who was his uh, doctor, the he was the honorary Swiss consul during uh, the Second World War, what he says about Backhouse, um, which... Roper doesn't get into too much is what makes Backhouse really unusual is he's got this incredible memory Mm. where if you read um, Decadence Manchu or the new edition Manchu Decadence, you'll see that Backhouse is capable of quoting in the original language at great lengths, long classical passages, but he was writing this entire book without a library. Right. All of this was just information in stored up in his head that he could recall um at will um that he has this great mind but at the same time he has real trouble distinguishing between things that he's read things that he's heard about and things that he's actually experienced um i think he might have had uh, more significant more significant mental impairments than maybe um, Hugh Trevor Roper was willing to give him, uh, you know, kind of throw him a bone a little and say that this is a guy that was not quite right in the head.
0: Instead, he just sort of imputes he, to him a sort of weakness of moral character, right?
1: Yeah, no, he says about decadence Manchu, which I think is really troubling, um, looking back uh, with uh, historical interest that once he received the manuscript for Decadence Manchu in, I think, 1973, he showed it to two professors um, in the United Kingdom, one a professor of history and one a professor of English, and asked for their feedback. And he writes that both of them said that this is an incredibly important his- work, both for its literary merits and its possible historic value. Um, and he then he, goes
0: on to essentially disregard them.
1: Yeah, and then he goes on to disregard them. He says that essentially they were hoodwinked, that they were taken in by the backhouse uh, con machine, and that their judgment is essentially irrelevant because they don't know what a liar backhouse is. And he describes Decadence Manchu in a really weird way. He says that none of the relationships he has in that book with uh, either the empress dowager or the more believable homosexual relationships ever happened that backhouse was celibate his entire life and that these memoirs uh, where he describes them as an explosion of repressed deviant sexuality Hmm. which is but
0: he gets the mechanics correct
1: well, it's not just the mechanics of the of the sex, but it's also the language. It's he has what I think is the greatest, uh, you know, kind of lowbrow yeah. dictionary of Chinese sex terms that for he must have heard
2: in context. Right? Yeah, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, you can,
0: can fake that. I'm I'm with you there. Yeah. There's that, definitely that. Does,
2: you know, it. Do does it strike you? He. Was someone who was unbelievable, you know, it off the scale IQ, a genius, very talented, but very undisciplined, spoiled, and was torn between uh, uh, pursuing some kind of re- you know reasonable academic career and finding some lifestyle where he could, who in fact could continue to to uh, to uh, visit brothels and, and and lead this amazing lifestyle, which was his other passion. He's a very carnal and very cerebral man at the same time. Right? I, I
0: feel for him. This is exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, this I, mean, is I mean, I can understand I can totally why. Understand this. And,
2: and that you, that he couldn't lead this kind of lifestyle and be an Oxford don, right? So you, you have to choose. It's and the only thing he could do is here. I am putting him on the couch, right? But I mean, the only sure. thing he could do was to to sort of lead a, lead a double life where he could use his talents to make enough money to live in Beijing and and still have this creative facade of being a respectable you
1: know book collector well i would say for the first 40 years of his life um, he seems to have made a real um, concerted effort to become a respectable um, englishman Mm -hmm. in a certain sense he was really angling with all of his work to build up the reputation and the resume to become the head of the chinese department at oxford that was his real goal in life um, and he was named the head of the uh, Chinese department at King's College in London. At one point, uh, he never filled that job. But I think it kind of destroyed him um, that some of the people who he had had um, negative relationships with over the years kind of derailed his campaign to become the head of the Oxford mm-hmm. department. And after his failure to get that job, he really kind of turned away from the foreign community in a really serious way um this also coincides um in after the Qing dynasty fell in 1912 the the new Chinese government was more based on western um institutions and a sense of western morality and one of the first things they did was outlaw homosexuality Mm. and ban gay brothels in Beijing so Both his personal failure and the change of the climate in Beijing, I think, made him retreat into um, kind of seclusion. He lived the rest of his life avoiding foreigners. Um, He would send his servants ahead of him when he went uh, through Beijing to make sure that there weren't any foreigners in the place he was going to so he could avoid them. Um, If he passed a foreigner in a rickshaw, it was said that he would cover his face with a handkerchief so that people wouldn't see him. Um, And he was really, uh, I I think, kind of scarred by some of his earlier experiences Mm. with his uh, compatriots. David, you were talking about how he
0: needed to sustain himself in a certain lifestyle. And part of the way, at least, that he's accused of having done that is by... Conning money basically from the War Office during the, the First World War, uh, that he was acting as some sort of an agent where he was supposed to procure arms mm-hmm. in China in, from from Manchuria specifically, and get them somehow shipped to to the Western Front, uh, and none of this actually happened. Though he received money and he made, he would send telegrams
1: about bandit attacks and this sort of thing. You remember right. this? One? from, the, Yeah. Sure. And I think it's deals like that that were at the heart of Hugh Trevor Roper's uh, attacks on Backhouse's <clears throat> credibility, that repeatedly Backhouse got himself into these situations where people gave him money, where he said he was going to give them some imperial treasure, or he told the war office that he was going to bring these rifles um, for the war effort. And he kept stringing them along saying, oh, no, there's been a hiccup. It's not here yet. Just wait. Be patient. It'll come. And he took the money. But this is one of the reasons also why I think um, uh, Trevor Roper hasn't been totally charitable to Backhouse and uh, perhaps his mental limitations. uh, Because Backhouse never kept any of this money. Any of the money that he received in these deals um, was always returned to the person that gave it to him after mm-hmm. the deals. Um, part of this was probably that he came from a very prominent family, and the family wanted to avoid any legal trouble. so They kept him in money? They, they didn't keep him in a lavish lifestyle, but he was living on an allowance for most of his life in Beijing um, that he would get from his family every month. Um, he left uh, London owing a lot of people money. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he seemed to have problems, uh, managing money himself. So, uh, his family for a very long time would send money to like, um, someone at one of the churches in Peking who would give him his allowance every month so that he wouldn't spend all of his money. <laughs> so he, he had trouble doing a lot of things that I think come pretty naturally to mm-hmm. most people.
0: So after the, the Qing was deposed in 1912 and he, he had his misadventures during the war and then the rise of the warlords um so he but he remained in China throughout through 1937 after the Marco Polo Bridge what was his life like during the Japanese occupation of Beijing
1: We don't really know exactly what his life was. There were a lot of uh, rumors that circulated in the foreign community about what his life was like. There was a rumor that one of his household servants was murdered, and there was some controversy surrounding that. Uh, People said that he had overly familiar relationships with his servants, um, which just in retrospect says to me he was probably living with long-term partners that... um, He would pretend that they were his uh, servants when in the company of other foreigners because it obviously was not uh, acceptable to have a gay lover. But he really spent that time kind of in private seclusion, and most people don't know what he was doing. Um, It's believed that he worked as a translator for um, both the Soviet government and the Japanese imperial government um, at various points. Um, at times he was employed as a translator for the british government but um, after his second major book in 1913 uh, the annals and memoirs of the court of peking he he really only worked on one major book after that and that was uh, a chinese dictionary that he did with a few other um, prominent linguists does that survive today uh, yeah, I believe you can you can get it. I'm I've I haven't seen it myself, yeah, well, but that'd be, that'd be um, it was uh, by Sir Walter Hillier. I think was the man that was the the driving force of well, that. Well, what was the, the
2: reputation of, of of the the the, the Empress Dowager book and his second book by that time? W- w- had they discovered the fraudulent nature? of no, it? Not
0: by
1: 1913.
2: He no, no, is, uh, by, by by during the chapter and after 1937.
1: Okay, yeah, I think the first real attacks on it, um, well, the first ta- attacks came in the 1910s because he had a pretty famous falling out with George Morrison and Morrison was going around telling people that Backhouse was a liar and that this book was based on uh, fraudulent sources. And it was easier for people to write Morrison off because uh, J.O.P. Bland, Edmund Backhouse's co-author, was um also a reporter from the london times and morrison's chief kind of rival in china Um, so people thought morrison was just being jealous and petty and also backhouse more or less challenged morrison to prove that it was fake and morrison didn't have the ability to do Mm -hmm. to do that Mm -hmm. um but in terms of his second book um no I don't think there's ever been any problem with that book. People believe it's it's based on available court records and that Backhouse was able to read and translate. Hmm. And it's considered certainly less sensational than the first book, but um, a, a solid work of popular history.
2: But perhaps forever tainted by the by the first book uh, by Backhouse, sure. his whole life. People can't. It's not the standard reading material nowadays for, for the Qing.
1: Sure. And aside from the uh, Jing Shan diary, there's not a big problem so far as I can tell with Backhouse's um, scholarship. Um, so far as I know, no one has ever challenged the reporting of George Morrison while he was, the, while he was working with Backhouse. And we have to believe that most of his uh, sources and information was coming directly from Backhouse so gentlemen are there actually <clears throat> any real life edmund backhouses living in chinese
0: cities today i mean not of course living quite such a storied and, and mythic existence but yes, surely really you know the type i'm talking about i mean they're here because of debts or some unsavory doings back home oh, yeah, false or exaggerated credentials here uh they they talk a big game out here i mean they're they're You've you you've met you've met them before, surely. I, I can think of one particular, yeah. but uh, I think I think
2: China in, in certainly in, when I was here in the eighties and even still the nineties, but back then especially it was a place foreigners could come and recreate themselves in a, in the way they wanted, and they could create an imaginary self in a way you couldn't really do that. And by going to another European country or going back between the U.S. and Europe, and Backhouse is certainly that type. He just did it better <laughs> than yeah. anyone ever could. Uh, everyone wants to pretend they know Chinese really well, and they've they've spent you know nights in bars with famous Chinese celebrities, doing sleeping with them and all this stuff. But you can tell in a few minutes they don't speak Chinese that well, and they could not have possibly been there, and no one would treat them seriously. So Backhouse is someone you got to hand it to him. You know, we lao Wai, we expats. He's like. You know, if, if there were anyone for whom that lifestyle he describes could have been true, it was him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think what makes Backhouse really unique among figures of that age is that he is kind of a lone voice that says China is not an inferior country that needs to be uh, conquered. He really does view, admire Chinese culture and in many ways views their manners and customs as more civilized than the culture that he's coming from he's he's not alone in that but yeah
0: you're 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 certainly right that he does
1: feel that way but in certainly in beijing and in the foreign legation community where that was china was was seen as a place to be plundered um and civilized um backhouse i think more than anyone else of his time went out of his way to understand and appreciate the the culture but which, that... which makes the
0: taint all the more regrettable because uh-huh. you know, if if yeah. if he had not been so sullied in so, other, so many other ways, and this has nothing to do with this, with his homosexuality, I maybe mean, because you know you know there's not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean that, that yeah. there just isn't anything wrong with that. But and yeah. I mean I think it's really interesting that the, this point that you bring up about about uh, the, the Republican period having sort of imposed this the judeo-christian moral. Sure. Um, because there isn't any any ex- explicit prohibitions in confucian culture there are many periods in chinese history where homosexuality seems to have really flourished in fact usually at the sort of heights mm-hmm. um, of, of 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 civilization i mean in in the sojo kaiyuan period in mm-hmm. tang i mean there's there's all sorts of homosexual dalliances and Qianlong himself was supposed to have had uh, homosexual dalliances with anyway um it's that's it's interesting that in a kind of new puritanical period he must have felt very much like this world that he so loved had been destroyed and and what would that do to one's moral bearings anyway
1: well and i think this is uh principally what hugh trevor roper missed when reading this manuscript Mm -hmm. that it's not necessarily so much of a intended to be a strictly historical work that in many ways this is you know an old man just talking about this beautiful moment in his life that's forever lost now that the the culture that created it has been replaced by something more new and modern and in his view uglier
0: mm. And that's a great way to, 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 to think about this book and about your, your, your work. Derek, thanks so much for talking to us about this. And you'll stick around with us to, to make a recommendation, right? Sure. Um, uh, the book, again, again, is Decadence Manchu. And the new edition of it, which is coming out soon, is called Manchu Decadence. This time spelled M-A-N-C-H-U. <laughs> Just good old English Manchu decadence. Yep. <laughs> Manchu <laughs> decadence. Um, so, David, why don't you start us off with recommendations? Uh,
2: just just a little not profound, but just a site I found uh, from... Uh, it's part of the, the AsiaObserver.org. It's just something called... Uh, what do they call it? Uh, it's called uh, On This Day in Chinese History. Oh, okay. That's all it is. And it's, and they, I don't know who does it. And it's not a slick... Production, but but somebody just gets a bunch of links, and tells you every day you get on and see what happened in history. And he has Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainland, recent history. Even has the you know uh, pop star births and deaths. Wow. you know Deng Xiaoping born or died today. Uh, the death
0: of this is the death September of Jiaqing, second. the
2: sixth emperor of the of the China Qing Dynasty, died mm-hmm. on this day in history. You know, and so on and so forth. It's fun. It's nothing amazing but i get on
0: it every now and then say oh that happened today yeah i'll check that out i'll put that in my tabs
1: my default opening tabs
0: derek what do you have for us
1: okay well on the subject of backhouse i'll give a couple recommendations for further reading um one is as we've discussed many times even though i have issues with his conclusions i think uh hugh trevor roper's hermit of peking is a must read for anyone that lives in china long enough um just to get a sense of who Backhouse was. It's it's the be- it's the only biography ever written of him and it's it's a pretty good read for the most part.
0: Have you thought about doing one?
1: Mm, I have. I just don't know what new um source material I would find right. on Backhouse right. that uh, you, I, you re-interpret can reinterpret the old. Right. The old um right. but uh I mean and you read Chinese and he didn't. Right. Sure, yeah. Well yeah. barely, but okay. <laughs> Um another really good one on the subject of kind of the sexual mores of uh decadence manchu in this period is uh a book i think it's called um homoerotic sensibilities in late imperial china by a scholar called Wu Sunsun um at the University of Hong Kong and it's a really interesting look at just uh what a sexually open and liberated place Beijing was at uh in wow. the late Qing dynasty it's a uh, fascinating raid.
2: i'd give anything to be reincarnated back go back to that period i think that'd be so amazing
0: yeah but you wouldn't be fashionable showing up with a, a, a woman on your arm That's no, no. I, mean,
2: I think there was a lot of things you could do under the radar that back then yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe I could have met Baghouse. Very cool. <laughs>
0: uh, I want to make two quick recommendations. Uh, one is uh Ma Tianjie's terrific blog, Chublik Opinion. Yeah. Uh, a m- new, very, very good very article good called uh, his latest piece. Uh, it's called Down with Nihilism. Uh, or Down with the Nihilism. Okay, yeah,
1: and this is Andrew Chubb? No, no. Oh, it's not
0: it? Andrew Chubb. It's a guy named Ma, Ma Tianjie. Okay. He's uh, a, a U.S. educated.
2: I think Chubb is China. It's meant to be China public or something. Okay,
0: like that. No, it's yeah, it's Chinese. Public, it's public opinion with Chinese right. Chi- public so characteristics. It's public, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, I was just giving a shout out I to know. an older Yeah, yeah, I editor. know, I know, <laughs> But
0: uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a terrific blog, and this particular piece basically looks at uh, the the new um, you know on, on the conservative left uh, this this uh, attack on on. Um, Anyone who sort of seeks to discredit the role of the Chinese Communists in the defeat of the Japanese, uh, and this has become—I mean, uh, you know—obviously, this has become quite fashionable. Uh, you know, since reform and opening began, I think without with not such a dogmatic historical approach, people really started to uh, recalibrate the role of the, the, the KMT uh, in, in the in the war effort. They, they the new appreciation for. Uh, the American war effort in the Pacific, and you know, a, a lot of the nonsense that they had been taught was thrown out. But it swung kind of far in the other direction, right? I mean, so that now, uh, if you talk to the um, the 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 liberal right in China, they tend to completely downplay any role that 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 the CCP has, and these are the people who are just. You know, full of cynicism and of scathing cynicism for the parade that's about to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I think it's a, it's a nice balanced look. And he closes in his penultimate paragraph, and he with a quote from a PLA general who, I think, he quotes quite approvingly, who 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 you know sort of has a nice rational, reasonable take on the whole thing. Anyway, very good piece. The other I wanted to recommend is Christine Larson's first piece that she's placed in the New Yorker, which is, of course, a great accomplishment in and of itself. It's a nice small piece. It's called, uh, Can the Chinese Government Get Its People to Like GMOs? And it's about how opposition to GMOs is coming in China, both from the liberal right and the conservative left, uh, which is an interesting phenomenon. Um, you know, both the the uh, kind of cosmopolitan city dwellers uh, have... Adopted this very kind of vociferous anti-GMO stance, a little bit like, and it, it reminds me of the anti-vaxxers in America. You have both the conservative right and the liberal left in in right. in, in the U.S. Um, anyway, terrific piece uh, I saw today on Twitter. Somebody who studied this issue and had gone to Shanghai to work on GMOs uh, had, had said something how Christina's piece captured captured the situation quite perfectly and it's also very well written of course as all her, all her work is great. great so check that one out and uh, Derek Sandhouse, thank you very much for taking time to come in and talk to us Anne. my pleasure really enjoy oh, oh,
2: Derek's other book on Bajou oh, you mentioned that I mean you know yeah, give me a little shout out. Give you some more book sales here. Okay, very good book. Which, by the way, we did a podcast on. That. That's right. Already uh, good. Which dig into the Seneca archives and smell the musty pie dough. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Thanks,
0: David. Good night. Man. Yeah. And uh, sorry to miss you, Jeremy. Uh, hope your work all went well and get your ass back on the show, boy. All right. See you later. <laughs>